All right. You can turn to Matthew chapter 1, but we're only going to be there for a few minutes. We're going to be all over the place today, because this is kind of the culmination of everything. Um, And this is one that I've been really looking forward to since the beginning of kind of the formulation of this this idea, this idea of, of speaking against the idea of the cancel culture that is so present uh, in our society today, speaking against this idea that is so counter to the gospel that, that there are those who have sinned in such a way that we should ignore them and throw them aside. Um, and this week, it, it, it all kind of comes to a point when we talk about, about the most awful of all of them, Jesus. There's irony in that. I hope you're picking up on that. Um, so, but to do that, I got to kind of set the stage using my favorite kind of metaphor, the kind where I pull from, from some sort of film. Um, so you may love it or hate it, love it or hate it. Um, okay. I, we're going to take a poll. Love it. The greatest showman. Okay, good. Perfect. This is good news. We're all kind of not seen greatest showman. Nick, you had one job to do. We assigned it. Nick, so good, good, right? Okay, The Greatest Showman is a fictional story about a historical person. Let's just get it that way. It's a fictional story with really good music written by some of the greatest songwriters. They're great. It's it's so good, so fun. A lot of people are turned off because they're like, okay, it is not accurate to his life. I'm like, I don't think he burst into song every 15 seconds in real life. Right? Like, it's not meant to be accurate. It's a, it's a musical. It's supposed to be fun and enjoyed. Anyways, but here's the thing. The story in The Greatest Showman, there's a couple of threads that go through it. Sure, you're thinking, it's about the guy that started the circus. And yes, that's true. But it's more the story of a guy who had so much pride within himself that had been told his whole life, you come from nothing, you're going to be nothing because of where you came from. And he says... I don't think so. And his obsession with overcoming what people said he could not overcome, the place that he came from, who he was, his socioeconomic status, the people that he surrounded himself with, people that were rejected by society, that were canceled. He was so proud that he said, I'm going to force myself into a position greater than the one that I came from despite what people say about me and he obsessed so much over it that he almost lost everything so if you haven't seen it spoiler alert i suppose but at the same time if i don't get to make the point you won't you won't see where we're going with this he has this relationship throughout the whole movie with his father-in-law and he so wants to prove to his father-in-law that he can do as well or better than him, even though he has nothing. And his father-in-law's position is, you're still just that weak, poor boy that I knew when you were a child. And, and it's this obsession that he has this whole time. And, and, and here's the thing. He, he, it seems impossible for somebody in his situation to overcome all of the challenges that he was left just based on the virtue of his ancestry, the people in his background, and then ultimately 
the people that he surrounds himself with. Because in a sense, the, the heart of the movie is trying to say, we should value people who seem like society wants to reject. Like, that's, that's the, the warm, touchy, heartstrings part of the film. That's what they're trying to get at. And what I think is, is so fantastic about the Savior that we follow, Jesus, is he was treated the exact same way. Now, he didn't sin. He, didn't, he wasn't filled with pride, in a sense, where he was trying to stick it to the people that had already to- always told him, you can't amount to anything. But he's experienced that same feeling. This Jesus that we follow has a whole genealogy, which if you're in Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to read verses 1 through 16. And I want to see if any of the names that I read as we go through here sound familiar to you. So if you're in Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel, the father of Abiad, and Abiad, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliad, and Eliad, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan, and Mathan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Yes, I picked all those names to read myself out loud. No, I did not practice. I made up half of that. Get that out of the way. Here's the thing. It's so easy to read through a genealogy like that and be like, it's just names, it just becomes white noise to me after a while as I read through. But when you stop and think about some of the names that we've read in here, these are all names, not all, but all of the names that we've read up to this point are a part of this same story. Sure, we, we didn't hit Adam because this version of the genealogy doesn't go all the way back to creation. You can get that in Luke and you can see that Adam was just as much a part of Jesus' genealogy. But, but when you look back, what I've said all along is that we're talking about a whole bunch of awful people just like us, right? Awful people just like us are the entire story building up to Jesus' birth. Jesus comes from an entire history of awful people just like us. Jesus comes, if you were going to say, 
if you were going to look back and say, well, well where would the Messiah come from? Surely he's not going to come from an adulterous murderer. Surely he's not going to come from, from the line of a prostitute. Surely he's not going to come from the line of insert any one of these names that we read or have studied all along. A, a, a deceptive mama's boy or whoever. Who do, you want, who do you want to talk about? Somebody who was willing to lie and say that his, his wife was his sister so that he could be protected? I mean, think of all of these names that built up to who Jesus was. And he's trying to claim, I'm the Messiah. And they're like, but look at your family. They're a wreck. I'm sure at some point, I mean, obviously not me. I have an amazing family and I would never be ashamed of them. But at some point, you, I'm sure, have a friend. Everybody's got that friend who I'm sure they could very easily become ashamed of their family at some point. It's like, that's the people that you come from. You know, that kind of thing. Imagine how it feels to be, insert politician's name's child. Right? You come from that family, or, or whatever it may be. Jesus' whole history was filled with these awful people, just like us. But these awful people don't build to what we would assume would have been the perfect person. They don't build to what, what, what Israel was looking for in a Messiah, in a Savior. And sometimes we, we can fall into that same trap where we're looking for something that looks the way that we expect. The, the kind of That's obviously the kind of ruler king that I'm wanting. Not, not a Jesus who comes from a line of sinful people. We didn't even talk about, about Mary and Joseph who Joseph almost divorced Mary because he thought that she had gone off with some other guy when she said, hey, I'm going to have the Messiah. He's like, oh, pause. We didn't even talk about, like, like all of these, every single one of these people in this list were sinful people. And we're expected to follow after their son, Jesus, who was not. This doesn't make sense. It would make sense that people would say, you come from nothing, why should we follow after you? Which is why it's not surprising that Jesus was rejected by the people that he came to. But if the people had been looking for the right thing, if the people had been listening to God all along, they would have expected this to be the kind of Messiah that was coming for them. I'm just going to read a couple of different verses that, that talk about the way that he was viewed, or the way that he was expected to be viewed, and the way that he was responded to. In Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like the root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing special when you look at this Messiah, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah was saying, the Messiah is going to come, but he's not going to look the way you want. He's not going to be King Saul, right? When the people of Israel were like, we want a king. And God says, you want a king? Here's your king. And they're like, that's a king. He stood a foot taller than everybody else ripped. I'm sure he had like big like veins running through his arms because he flexed so hard all the time, 
right? That's a king. That's the king they were looking for. That's the Messiah the people wanted. They wanted this. I, I, Star Wars, Episode Five: Empire Strikes Back, right? Luke ends up on Dagobah, meets this little green guy, and he says, I'm looking for a great warrior. Because he's told, you got to go finish your training with Yoda, the guy who trained me. And what's his, what does he say? I'm looking for a great warrior. I could go on and quote the rest of the scene, which I won't, because wars do not make one great. But here's the thing. That's what we fall into. We fall into this trap of saying, if somebody is meant to be great, they're meant to be awe-inspiring or powerful looking. And we have these kind of preconceived notions of what it is that we're looking for. And Jesus did not fit that mold. And if they were thinking, if they were listening to the prophets, they would have known. He's going to be an unassuming kind of guy. He's just going to be a dude like you. He's going to come from a family that's broken like yours, filled with people who are sinful like you. And that's who Jesus was going to be. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Yes, this is building to something. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He's not riding into town on a mighty steed. He's riding into town on a little donkey that probably sounds a little bit like Eddie Murphy. That's three movie references in like 10 minutes, guys. That's really good. That's Jesus. He's not coming in with all the fanfare. Oh, I just came up with a fourth one. I'm going. He's not coming in like Prince Ali, guys. <laughs> right? No. He's coming in like the little street rat that they wanted to... Man, I'm going to roll. This feels good. That's not the Jesus that they wanted. But that's the Jesus that they were promised. That's the Jesus they should have expected. That's the Jesus they needed. So that's why when he came and he said, I'm here, I'm going to be your savior. They said, we don't want that Jesus. We don't want that Messiah. We want to pick and choose the Messiah that we want. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Isn't that just one of the other guys? Don't we know his dad? Isn't he just a craftsman? Like, how are we supposed to expect this guy to be our Messiah, to be our Savior? How is that the solution? He comes from nothing. He's unassuming. Not much to look at. Doesn't have doesn't have the valiant horse to ride into town on. He's not wearing the big suit of armor. He's, he's not meeting any of our expectations. Therefore, we can't trust that he can be any more than what we assume of him. They're treating him the same way that we would treat those who have done something so bad that we would say they can't come back from that, even though he's the only one who was capable of bringing any one of those people in his history, back from the, the death that is coming with sin. Only he was that solution. But they couldn't just remain peaceful as like, we don't, we don't, we don't think you're the Messiah, so we're going to reject you. No, it, it became, he has to be silenced. He has to be done away with. He has to be 
rejected. He has to be canceled. And so what did they do? Not only was Jesus perfect, but they had to find a way to get rid of him. So what did they do? They labeled him a terrorist. Mark chapter 14, verse 57 says, And some stood and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. They were characterizing him as some sort of civil threat who was coming to breed some sort of great riot or destroy the temple. The thing that that Israel held most dear, the temple, he came and he said he's going to destroy our holy place. He's fighting against God. We have to get rid of this guy. We have to to do something. He's dangerous. He is a threat to us. But even amidst all of this rejection, the one who should not have been canceled refused to cancel those who were around him. Luke chapter 15, verse 1 and 2. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. He was rejected for not rejecting the people that society said he ought to reject. Back to the greatest showman for just a second. This other thread that goes throughout is the civil unrest that surrounds the fact that in the movie, P.T. keeps bringing all of these people that are different together and treating them like humans. And that offends the people in the city who think that they are not worth valuing, that they are not worth saving, they are not worth using for any sort of positive use, that they are worth sending away and rejecting and saying, we don't want to have you in our city, you're, 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 messing, up our, you're, you're messing up our place, go away. And Jesus even faced that same kind of pushback, that same kind of backlash for saying, yeah, nobody likes tax collectors. I'll be honest, like, who who likes the idea of having to pay taxes? Nobody. Nobody likes that idea. But Jesus went and hung out with the the tax collectors and the sinners, which, which is so great. And we could get into all of his interactions with the Pharisees off and on because I love when they're like, he's hanging out with the sinners. And he's like, yeah, guys, hanging out with the sinners over here, right? Jesus didn't see broken people or sinful people or deceptive people. I mean, right? Let's think, let's think, we, let's think about Zacchaeus, right? Tax collector, but admittedly had ripped off tons of people, taken advantage of them for lots and lots of money, become super wealthy because he had taken advantage of others. And what did Jesus do? Hey, Let's go have lunch. That's who Jesus was. The only one who could say, I am better than you. I am more holy than you. I am more perfect than you. There is no reason that I have to be with you. That same Jesus did not have to come down, but did not, Philippians chapter 2, did not think equality was sitting with God to be worth holding on to, but rather humbled himself, taking on the form of man, coming here and living among us. And not only living among us, but spending time with the worst of us. 
do you see this contrast between, between the way that, that we're tempted to treat those awful people who are just like us and the way Jesus, who was not awful but was treated like one because He lived in such a way that it hurt those who were around Him. It, it, it kind of cramped their style. It made them uncomfortable continuing to exist in the same way. And so, unlike the rest of the people that we've talked about up into this series, we've talked about kind of the redemptive arc for everybody. We've talked about those who were, who were wicked, sinful, and some sort of awful thing happened in their life that they were responsible for, and it made sense that they would be rejected, but instead God redeemed them and did something amazing. Now we're looking at Jesus, the one who did absolutely nothing, was perfect in every way, lived his life according to the law perfectly and, and followed after God and was the only one who could have actually lived that life. And yet, instead of him being redeemed, he's the one who takes the fall for the rest of them. Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 53. You've heard this before. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The promise was, you are going to reject him, but not just reject him, you are going to murder him. Acts chapter 2, Peter says it in, in no delicate terms. Starting in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, you saw it. You were there. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. You did that. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. He's in no uncertain terms, Peter is saying to the crowd, and by virtue, if you want to extrapolate that out, to all of us, your sin killed this innocent man. This is on you. This is on me. Every single one of us deserved what it is that he experienced except that he said, I've got this one for you. That is so, that, that is the gospel. And that's why to say there's no coming back from sin is so counter to the heart of God and so counter to the way that he has said he was going to work from the beginning. Right? We said it at the very beginning of the series. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned, God said, I'm going to fix this. 
I'm not done with you just because you broke this thing. At some point, all of us have probably broken something valuable in some parent or grandparent's house or something like that. Or maybe you've, you've been there when somebody broke something of yours and it's like, oh, they're, they're done with me, they're going to hate me now. They don't hate you. Or they don't hate you. Or if they do, you should talk to them about that. It's just stuff. It's just stuff, guys. But, but like we, we, we broke something precious to God, our holy relationship with him. And he said, it's okay. I'm going to fix it. I'll pay for it. You broke it, but I'll pay for it. It's, it's okay. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who's not done with us. And thinking back to kind of where we started in this, this, this argument that, that where you come from determines all you can ever be is just so counter to the truth of the gospel and this demonstration of who Jesus was. Right? right? Everything about his life screamed, I am going to make you something different, something more than you are. You are sinful and broken and far from God, and I am going to take it on myself to make that different, to make you new, to make you whole, to make you complete, to restore you and to redeem you. Part of the conversation going on in our country right now this may hurt feelings. I don't know. Don't know where you're coming from on this. Part of the conversation in our country right now is between one side that says, we see where you've come from and you have no hope of ever improving without our help. And there's another side that says, you have great worth and are capable of being more than what the situation is that you were born into or where you have come from. Without You are capable of making something of yourself without us taking over and ruling your life. If you're confused as to which side that is, we can talk about that later. We can have a longer conversation about that. But we cancel people where they, because of where they come from, what their political position is, what their, what their religious history is. We cancel people because of what kinds of media they like to consume or what sports teams they like to follow. We cancel people because they hurt our feelings when they say something that we don't agree with and instead of being willing to stop and have a conversation, we'd rather just block them or mute them or unfollow them because it cramps our style to have somebody tell us something different than what it is that we're most comfortable with. We have a cancel culture because people have been raised to be incapable of dealing with something that makes them feel discomfort or pain or hurt feelings or feelings of inadequacy. 
This all exists because we've been raised to say, I shouldn't feel any discomfort. I should get what I want now, and it should be easy, and no one should tell me no. I shouldn't be told that I'm sinful. I shouldn't be told that I need Jesus to save me. I should be given everything that I need so that I can do the things that I want right now, and, and I reject anyone or anything that pushes back against that. And if you challenge me on that, I'm done with you. And if, and, if, and if you challenge me and the people that I agree with and feel comfortable around, we're going to send you away, we're done with you, we don't want you to be heard anymore. The gospel is built on us realizing that we are inadequate. The whole point of the gospel is, you can't save yourself, I can't save myself. That's it. Step one, finding God, step one is realizing you're not him. Realizing that, that you have no hope of saving yourself. You are not big and strong. You do not have a valiant steed to ride into town on. You do not have a shine, this shining armor. You are not strong enough, capable enough to pull yourself up onto the level of God. That is not who we are. And if you don't like hearing that, and you're like, I don't want to hear people tell me that anymore, that's exactly why I've gone through this whole series. It's because I want us to realize that we are just like every single one of those people who deserve to be forgotten and cannot do anything to make ourselves like God. But that God is good. But that God loves us and wants to redeem us and to restore us and to bring us back into his family. And we canceled the only one who could do that. The one man who came along who could make that difference, who could fix everything. That's the one we said, we don't want that guy. Get rid of him. And we cancel him again every day when we fail to live in a way that honors him as the one and only hope for our salvation. We try to replace him with ourselves. But what we fail to realize is that in canceling him, we were doing exactly what he had planned all along because that is exactly how he wanted to save us. And so when we feel these feelings of inadequacy, when we feel these feelings of brokenness, when we look at our lives and we say, look at this sin that is overtaking me, look at this awful situation that I find myself in, or look at the pain that's around me, or look at the, look at the lack of, of, of peaceful conversation happening in our society, look at how broken everything seems to be, and there's no hope, there's nothing that I can do exactly. There is nothing that you can do ultimately. But that also doesn't mean that's where you stop. That doesn't mean that's where it ends. Because Jesus has already done everything it takes to change your whole trajectory, to change your whole identity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
That's the whole hope. That, that, is, that is the, like, I, I could not end this series with a more perfect verse. You are no longer who you once were. If you are in Christ, you are completely new. Everything that happened before, it still happened. It's still real. Don't forget it. Instead, appreciate where Jesus has brought you now. Appreciate what Jesus says you are now. Appreciate who he is making you into now. There is hope beyond where we were. There's hope beyond our background, our family, our history, the, the, the socioeconomic status that we were born into, the, the political background that we find ourselves in, the, the sense of you know, things that we're passionate about, whatever, whatever groups we find, us, there, there's more to us than that because Jesus has said there is more to us than that. He says, you aren't one of those things. You aren't a demographic. You aren't one of the, you are, you are my brother. I have adopt, my father has adopted you into my family. You are now a son or daughter of God because of everything that Jesus did. We don't reject each other. We don't reject because there is hope beyond this life. There is hope beyond where we have come from, and that hope is in Jesus.